Amen. If you want to open your Bibles up to Daniel, the book of Daniel. And chapter 11. And we're going to be reading from there, although uh, we're going to be looking at this passage. But, but as Ruth said, we're not going to be reading it in its entirety now because it's very long. Uh, so if you are in the WhatsApp group, then you will have had the instruction to read that. Uh, I set homework this week before you arrive today, so many of you will have done that. Uh, if you aren't in the WhatsApp group and you would like to be, um, all we need is, is your phone number. We can add you to that. There's lots of things that happen in there, prayer requests and updates about church activity. Or if you prefer, we have a, a Facebook group as well that you can engage with. Um, all we need to do is, is add you to that. So um, happy to do that. Let's quieten our hearts then now as we come to the part of our worship service where we hear God's word to us. So, Father, as we come to your word today, we thank you that it is not the word of Graham Phillips. It is the word of God. And, Lord, I pray that you would help me to move out of the way of it and to present it as it is to your children. We thank you, Lord, that ultimately the grass that you've given for us to feed on is your word. The good pasture that you want to lead your sheep into every week is your word. It is the bread that sustains us and gives us life. And so, God, as we turn our attention now this afternoon to this wonderful prophetic book, Daniel, we pray, Lord God, that it would bring a spiritual nourishment to this church, a strengthening, an encouragement, and a reinvigorated power in our lives, Lord God. And, uh, Father, we pray that there would be a real response to this wonderful word of yours in the Holy Scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Amen. Now, as I've said, I'm not going to read this passage in its entirety uh, because of its length, but hopefully it's a passage that you will be familiar with. This chapter that we're going to call all of our attention to this afternoon, once again, it reinforces the great theme of the book of Daniel that we have been studying now for several months. It reinforces this theme of God's reigning, ruling that is, in both the heavens and on the earth. That is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. That world events happen according to his plan and occur at his timing. Over and over again in this chapter, you will see the phrase repeated by the angel speaking to, to Daniel at the appointed time. I don't know if you noticed that when you read it, at the appointed time, at the appointed time. Well, who is it that is appointing this time? Is it not God who appoints the times and the seasons? Is it not God who orders the events that we read in Daniel chapter 11? It is true that God is the appointer of times. So he reigns over, not just in heaven, but he reigns over the events on the earth. This is the core doctrine and teaching of the book of Daniel. And I really want for you to grasp this church. I want for you to understand this today. Because the doctrine of God's sovereignty over all creation is sadly a doctrine that is very much neglected and even resisted in much of the church in this nation at this day. It is despised, yet it was the doctrine of the Apostle Paul. It was the doctrine of Jesus Christ. It was the doctrine of Daniel. And it was the doctrine of many saints who lived outside of the Scriptures. It was the doctrine of Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones and George Whitfield, three of the greatest preachers ever to have lived. And sadly, it has been laid in the dust for the last 200 years, and I hope to bring it new life for you today. So God, it is, who reigns so completely over his creation, so precisely, and yet without violating the freedom of his creatures. He brings his will to pass perfectly, and not earlier or later then he's planned, but exactly according to his timing, to the time that he appointed before the foundation of the world. I want you to see, church, that, that God isn't sat up in heaven helplessly twiddling his thumbs. 
God isn't, as some preachers would have it, powerless. Powerless before the sovereign will of man. No. God is not at the mercy of human free will. He's not unable to get what he wants done unless we agree with him. This is a pagan teaching. We believe that man is absolutely free to do all that is in his heart, do we not? Man is created like no other creature. In all of the created realm, we have the freedom to choose what's in our heart to do. But does not the Bible also teach that we are slaves to sin outside of Christ? So though we have the agency to choose whatever is in our heart to do outside of Christ, the only freedom that we have is to sin. (laughs) So free will, ultimately, outside of the grace of God, leads to sin. (laughs) It is God who is able to free us from sin. This is the argument of the book of Romans. So God is sovereign over all his creatures. He is bringing his will to pass in every minute of every day, not just in the book of Daniel, not just in the times of the Bible, but today. Now, God is still doing this. He is still the author of creation. He is still, as the book of Hebrews says, sustaining that creation minute by minute. Well, what do you mean, Graham? How can you possibly say that God is bringing his will to pass in my life? How can you say that when I'm suffering? How can you say that when I'm experiencing pain, when I'm experiencing seasons of loss, when I'm even experiencing times of backsliding? How can you say that God is sovereign over that? Well, I want to call your attention to this text because much of this passage in which God is prophesying through an angel about what is to come, much of this passage has to do with preordained suffering. Who for? For God's people. Much of it has to do with preordained suffering, even death for God's people. Not just those who are wayward, but those who are true. So I want you to see in this passage today that though we do experience as Christians times of loss, times of brokenness, times of pain, times of suffering, all of those things must work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. So that means that nothing in this life is wasted. Nothing goes awry, even our times of suffering. Read Daniel eleven thirty-two to 35, which says, But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shan't receive much help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white. Did you hear that? What was the reason for these saints' suffering? What was the reason that God allowed them to stumble without even receiving much help? It was for this, that they may be refined, purified, and made white. That is, made Holy, did you know that God allows you to walk through seasons of suffering, being beaten down, sometimes even wondering, God, where are you? Why is it that he does that? He does that so that you may be refined, brothers, so that you may be purified, sisters, so that you may be made holy, conformed into the image of Christ. Nothing is wasted in the life of a believer, even suffering. Amen? So suffering... Pain and loss in the life of a Christian are not always evidence that the devil is getting his way and has God's arm up his back. Oh no, these are certainly not evidences that God is not sovereign. Even in these things, we see God's appointed perfect timing in the life of a believer. It is not true, however, that God works all things together for good for everyone on the planet. This is only true, according to Romans, of the believer. So if we're united to Christ, brothers and sisters, and we're on this journey of of growing 
in our knowledge of him, then I can promise you one thing, that you will suffer. I can promise you that you will suffer. God, God promised that through Christ. And Jesus Christ, of course, did what in his earthly life? He, he suffered. He suffered. I can promise you you will do that. So how is it that we in, in modern day England, we expect in church to never suffer? We expect that, that God will never let us suffer. In fact, this is the teaching of many churches in the UK, that if you're suffering, there's something wrong with your faith. This is simply not true. Now, this doctrine, as I've said, of God's sovereignty and timing, it's perfect timing. It applies to all the affairs of the world as we experience them in the here and now. All things are happening and unfolding according to your God's perfect timing. They're happening according to his plan. Isn't that comforting? We don't live in a world of chaos. We don't live in a world which is dominated and ruled over by Satan. We don't live in a world that is dominated and ruled over by the fickle whims of man. We live in a world that is the same world that Daniel lived in, which is governed and ruled by Yahweh. Hallelujah. I want to say this. Does your life feel out of control? Do you feel maybe sometimes like you've missed the call of God on your life? Does it feel sometimes like God may have abandoned you? The message of Daniel 11 is this, not a chance, not a chance. God is bringing about his purposes in your life with precision, with care, but according to his timing, not according to your timing. This is the wrestle that we have every day as a Christian, is it not? I think of the story of John Bunyan, the writer of the Pilgrim's Progress. Sorry, Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote that book in jail. Wrote much of that book in jail. He was in jail for 12 years. 12 years. He could have at any point walked free if he'd agreed to stop preaching. But he said this, I will wait until moss grows on my eyelids before I forsake the call of God on my life. He had five children living outside, but he stayed in jail so that he could faithfully, faithfully preach the word of God. Isn't that incredible? I think we'll also see in this passage today the importance of knowing God. The importance of knowing who God is. Knowing who he is in his nature, knowing his character, knowing his word, his commandments, but then equally knowing him personally, knowing him intimately, having a personal relationship with God. We will see that it would be for those who really know God who would be able to stand firm in the face of persecution and deception. That is a promise in this chapter for those who know their God, that they will be strong, that they will stand firm, and that they will do great things. It's a promise for those who know their God. The Hebrew word is yada, yada. That is a word that is used in the book of the Bible for many different purposes. It's the word that is used to say that Adam knew Eve. There is an intimacy to that word yada. However, it is also spoken about as a Knowledge in the head, an understanding in the heart of what is meant by truth. So we are to know our God. And it's through knowing him that we be strong. That is the teaching of this passage. We're also going to see the remarkable accuracy, once again, of Bible prophecy. This passage predicts certain historical events with such a ridiculous level of accuracy that some skeptics claim that it is simply too accurate to be prophecy. It's too accurate. So the skeptics will say that this book of Daniel was written after the events it describes because of the incredible accuracy of these prophecies. Much of this chapter, of course, deals concerning two kings. It talks about the king of the north and the king of the south. And we'll go into that a little bit. We'll go into uh, what those kings represent and, and, and what happened uh, in the description of this chapter. But I, I will say, we, we're not going to go into every detail of this passage today, because to be honest, we'd be here all day. And uh, I know you have homes to go to. But we will need to kind of understand, broadly speaking, what's happening here, so that we don't make misapplications. Church, it's important 
that we take careful attention to this passage so that we don't read our own meanings into it. So some of this preach is going to be focused on what happens between verses 5 and 21. Uh, Some of it will be focused on what happens between verses 21 and 36. But ultimately, we're going to be focusing on verses 32 to 36. We're going to be talking about those who know their God. So let's just begin and quickly divide up this passage and understand what's happening here. What's being prophesied? Who are these two characters, the king of the north and the king of the south? And what has it got to do with us in the present day? Well, firstly, let me say this. Between verses 1 and 35, scholars believe there are up to 135 independent facts of history that are accurately predicted. 135 historical events that are accurately predicted in this chapter of Daniel. The fourth Persian king that's mentioned in verse 2, for example, that becomes strong and stirs up all against Greece. This king is nearly universally accepted to be King Xerxes. If you ever watched the movie 300, that king is the one prophesied here. He reportedly had the largest army the world had ever seen at this point. When he invaded Greece, his army was so large that he actually built a bridge made out of ships across the stretch of water between Europe and Asia. He lashed together over 300 ships, and it took his army seven days and seven nights to cross that pontoon across that body of water. We also know that Xerxes, this king, did stir up all of his world, all of his empire against Greece at this time. He amassed his forces at Thermopylae, which is the uh, story we know in the Battle of 300, where 300 Spartan warriors led by a king, Leonidas, resisted the masses of Xerxes for three days. We know that the mighty king of verse 3 that is mentioned here in Daniel chapter 11, who rules with great dominion, but whose kingdom shall be broken almost as soon as it's arisen, we know that this is Alexander the Great. This is a prophecy concerning Alexander the Great in the Bible. This passage of Scripture, roughly written 200 years before Alexander the Great began his conquests, accurately predicts that his life would be broken, that he would pass away almost as soon as his dominion began. And we know that Alexander the Great, after conquering much of the known world at that time, he died at the age of 32, partying and drinking in Babylon. And his kingdom was then divided up into four parts. The Bible says it wasn't divided up and given according to his posterity, which means it wasn't given to his son or a, a, a legitimate heir, but was instead divided up into four parts. And this is true too. Alexander did have sons, Uh, But these sons were killed, and his kingdom was divided up into four between four of his generals. So again, we see the Bible accurately predicting future events of history. Now, verses 5 through 35, the rest of this passage, we see lots of stuff referring to these two kings. The king of the north, the king of the south. Why are we seeing that? Who are these kings? Well, these two kings represent the leaders of two regions in this Greek empire. The king of the north, which was the northern empire of Greece, Syria, and part of Iraq as we'd know it now, and then the southern part of this kingdom, which was the area of Egypt. Now, over these regions, there were many kings. They were taking the name of the original rulers of those areas. So from the north, there was a general called Seleucus, Seleucus I, who began to reign over the northern kingdom of that divided Greek empire. And in the south, we have a man called Ptolemy, with a silent P at the front. Ptolemy I, who reigned over that southern region. And this portion of scripture from 5 through 35 is basically describing events that happened over a roughly 150-year period of time. And when we read the king of the north, the king of the south, during this time, we're reading actually about lots of different kings that ruled during that period of time. Ptolemy one, Ptolemy two, Ptolemy three in the south, and Seleucus one, two, and three in the north, and eventually four. And there are some insanely accurate predictions in here which have made skeptics doubt, as I've said, whether the book was actually written later. But interestingly, here's a little bit of a historical fact for you. There are some that 
debate whether this is something that actually happened, but there's a historian called Josephus, who was actually a Jewish guy, and he was writing in the first century AD. He's well-respected as a historian, and he actually wrote a little bit about Jesus. But he has this story in his writings of Alexander the Great, and what happened when Alexander the Great reached Jerusalem, because, of course, he did conquer the Holy Land. And apparently, according to Josephus, when Alexander the Great approached Jerusalem, the high priest came out to him and opened up the book of Daniel to him and pointed out the passages referring to Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great said, yes, that's me, and decided not to destroy Jerusalem. Well, there's an interesting story for you. The prophecies from verse 5 until at least verse 36, as I've said, they, they span the time between about 305 B.C., and 164 BC. Verse 6, we read about a, a veiled reference to the marriage of a lady called Bernice, who was the daughter of the Egyptian king Ptolemy II and Antiochus II of Syria. In verse 7, we have a historical reference in this verse to the intervention of Ptolemy III, the brother of Bernice, who took revenge for the death of his sister in a military expedition against the north. So we can see verse by verse, we're seeing prediction of events that actually happened. Now we're going to move on because I don't want to bog us down in too much history, but when we move on into verses 21 to 36, we see the arrival of a very important character in all of this biblical prophecy because a large chunk of Daniel chapter 11 concerns one particular king of the north. It says that this man was a contemptible person a contemptible person who will take the throne illegitimately through flattery, who shall profane the temple and set up an abomination that causes desolation. Now, you hear that phrase and your ears prick up, don't they? Because we remember Jesus talked about an abomination that causes desolation. Now, this should make your ears prick up. Because already in Daniel, we've seen two characters mentioned, haven't we? In Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, there's this character called the little horn, isn't there? The little horn of Daniel chapter 7, which arises in a Roman empire amongst ten other leaders, displaces three of the horns, right? And then in Daniel chapter 8, we see another little horn who raises up out of the four divided kingdoms of Greece. These are actually two different characters. But each little horn in Daniel is a foreshadowing of a character that you will all know the name of. The Antichrist, okay? So this character described from verse 21 through 36 and onwards, indeed, in Daniel chapter 11, is a foreshadowing of the end times Antichrist, okay? So what we see in this character here is essentially a foretaste of what will happen at the end time with this character described in the New Testament. Well, really, he's known in the New Testament as the the man of sin. He's not really called the Antichrist as much, but we know him by that name. But this man described in verses 21 to 36 was actually the ninth ruler of the northern kingdom, a man called Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV, okay? And he did seize the throne illegitimately. He got the throne through flattery. He wasn't supposed to be the king, but he managed to bribe people and he had a way with words and he wheedled his way in there. And we know from this story um, that he then began to make war against the king of the south. And that's true also. We know that he led a campaign uh, described in verses 25 and 26 against the Egyptian kingdom. And that he was successful, that his armies did defeat the southern king. Then we read in verses 29 and 30 that this king of the north, Antiochus IV, attempted a second conquest of Egypt. But this time he wasn't successful. We read that ships from Kittim came and he's turned back. And this is true. We, we know that from history, Antiochus IV came south. First time he was successful. The second time, ships from Rome came. And a man named G. Papilius Lanus, who was actually a Roman senator, apparently drew a circle around Antiochus and the sand and said, you need to make a decision before you step out of that circle. Either 
you're going to stand and try and take Egypt. And if you do, the Roman army is going to be brought against you or you're going to retreat. Antiochus wisely decided that he was going to retreat. But he did so very angrily. And we read that um, in his return, in verse 30 and 31, that he showed rage against the people of God. And this also is true. We know that he killed tens of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem because he was so angry at being humiliated by the Romans. We also know that he wanted to Hellenize, that is to make the city of Jerusalem more Greek. So he'd set up, if you remember me talking a few weeks back, he'd set up this kind of athletic circuit next to the temple. He was wanting all of the Jews to learn Greek and to teach their children Greek. He actually went into the Jewish temple. He went into the temple, which of course we know is an abomination for a Gentile. He turned it into a temple to Zeus and then had a pig sacrificed on the altar on December 25th, 168 BC. So this is the, the abomination that causes desolation of Daniel chapter 11, not the one that Jesus is talking about. But you will see that there will be a future abomination that causes desolation, which is yet to happen for us, which will be the ultimate antichrist that Antiochus is just a picture of. Okay, As I've said, we know this man is a foreshadowing of this future Antichrist, And we can learn certain things about the future Antichrist through looking at, um, we, can, we can learn a lot about him through looking at Antiochus IV. We know that he'll, this future Antichrist, he will gain his rule illegitimately. He'll gain it through flattery and deceit. He will exalt himself above all gods and speak blasphemy against the God of gods. This future Antichrist, just like Antiochus IV, is going to be an archetypal narcissist. He's literally going to worship himself. He is going to think himself worthy of worship. He's going to be flattering. He's going to be very smart. He's not going to be an idiot. He's going to have a way with words. And the whole world will look to him as the answer to all of their questions, much like Antiochus IV. And ultimately, the future Antichrist, just like Antiochus IV, will turn against the people of God and will persecute them. Now, we know in history that at this time when Antiochus IV was persecuting the Jews, there were actually many Jews that sided with Antiochus because they thought, you know what, life's going to be much easier, to be honest, if we just let go of all of the religious practices that we hold and we just just compromise a little bit, you know? Just allow him to put this amphitheater in our city. Allow him to put this stadium outside the temple. And let's just be friendly to this guy. It'll make our lives easier. So there were lots of Jews who sided with Antiochus. Many of them felt that resistance against him was futile and that they should get over themselves and start worshipping the way that the Greeks did instead of how they had been taught to. So... They decided to dispense with the old ways of God and begin to live like the Greeks did. But there was one group that decided that they would not do that. And they're mentioned in verse 32. And this is really what I want for us to focus on. So we're now through all of the sticky stuff, the prophecy about history. I hope that's helped you understand who these kings of the north and the south are. And who this man who rises up in verse 21 was. That's Antiochus Epiphanes, which is in itself a blasphemous name. It is a a name that he took to himself, which essentially means God revealed. And he was pointing to himself and saying, again, putting himself over all the gods. So let's move on. In verse 32 it says, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. That is Antiochus IV. But... The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Who are these people then who know their God and stand firm and take action? Well, we know of a certain people called the Maccabees from history. Ever heard of the Maccabees? You ever heard of Hanukkah? Well, this is where that all began. You see, a few months after Antiochus Epiphanes walked into the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar... A few months after that, he sent envoys, that is a representation of of people, north to a small village of Jerusalem. And in this village, 
Antiochus's people, they set up an altar to a pagan god. And they commanded an elderly man called Mattathias to offer a sacrifice to this pagan god on the altar. And he refused. He said, I'm not going to do that. And so, wanting to avert any trouble, another villager said, well, look, if he's not going to do it, I will. I'll be the one to offer the first sacrifice. Don't want to see any bloodshed here. Don't want to see any trouble. I'll offer the sacrifice. Mattathias, the old man, at this point grabbed a sword and slew the Jewish man who was ready to give a sacrifice to this pagan god. He then slew all of the men sent by Antiochus. He killed them all. And this was the beginning of the Maccabean revolt, which ended three years later after much bloodshed with the rededication of the temple, where proper sacrifices were restored. And, and that's what we celebrate, what's what the Jews celebrate in Hanukkah. Mattathias had five sons, and all of these sons rallied around him. And these are the people described in verse 32. These are those who knew their God, who stood strong and who took action. Now, I want to say to you today, church, we need a revived Maccabean revolt in the spiritual realm in this day and age. We may not be under physical attack from an enemy force. We may not be facing yet the end times of the Antichrist. But let me say this, the church is under attack from an Antichrist spirit. And there are many Christians or churchgoers who are seeking to compromise with this Antichrist spirit. There are many willing to forsake the ways that God has given us in scriptures and to worship God in a fleshly, antichrist way. And I believe God is wanting to raise up Maccabeans in this day also. Just as these men, as I say, were standing against a type of antichrist in their day, so we in our day are seeing the church attacked on every side by this antichrist spirit. Well, what do I mean by antichrist spirit? Because that is quite a, a loaded title. An antichrist spirit is simply a spirit that leads people away from God and toward man. It's a spirit that leads people away from God and toward man. It's a spirit that will always exalt the power and glory of men and of women and will ultimately worship the creature above the creator. You ever see the deification of men? You ever see people calling themselves apostles and prophets, super apostles? All these names and titles, what is that? That's the deification of men. You ever see hypersensualized people in that church? People who are behaving in ways that aren't proper for Christians. Again, that is an antichrist spirit. It will always exalt man over God. It's worldly, it's sensual, it's, it's preoccupied with worldly things, with riches, with gain, with being a Christian because it's the blessed life. And what they mean by that, isn't what your Bible means. They mean financial blessings. They mean worldly gain. This is an antichrist spirit. And the Bible says that those who know their God will stand strong against this. Those who know their God will stand firm. They won't be led astray by this antichrist spirit. I want to say to you that how do we know God? That's the question we need to know today because I believe this is one of the things that, that is the reason for us seeing such apostasy in the church. It, it's true. I was talking with people the other day about the problems they're experiencing in their church. And it seems to me that people in church right now are willing to go along, by and large, with whatever the popular cultural political stance is in order to win bums on seats. And let me tell you today, the only defense against this slide into apostasy, which we are seeing, the only defense against that is to know our God, is to know him. So it's imperative that we know, church, what that means. How do we know God? How do we know him? Well, I believe 
there are a number of ways that we can know about God. And I'm going to work through them quickly before I finish. Firstly, every child coming into this world knows God in this sense, through the natural world, through what they experience. Kids just seem to kind of naturally have a faith in something supernatural, don't they? They may not have it all nailed down and what that means, but they look at the world and they say, there must be a God. There must be a God. Kids aren't born atheists, you know. They're discipled into atheism. (laughs) They grow up immediately thinking, wow, there must be a God somewhere. Secondly, we know God through how he has revealed himself, don't we? God has chosen to reveal himself to us. He's not hiding. He's chosen to reveal himself to us, principally through Scripture, which is the Word of God, and through Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate embodiment of the Word of God. I want to say, church, we as Christians ought to make God the study of our lives. God ought to be a subject of study for you. He ought to be a study of interest for you. Honestly, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart, the ignorance of many of us Christians today. When a Muslim will try and talk to us on the streets and they know our Bible better than we do. This is an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment. And, And I believe God wants to raise up a generation today that truly know their God. How few Christians want to sit under true Bible teaching today. They would rather go and be entertained. They would rather have their ears tickled than actually hear what the Bible has to say and know the God of their Bible. Just as biologists know about the inner workings of the body, mathematicians are concerned to know the principles which govern their discipline, so a Christian is someone who ought to know the things of God. Not just the basics that God exists, that he loves me, But a Christian ought to be ready to answer any question that the world might have about the God that they say they believe. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Believers, Charles Spurgeon says, are constantly spoken of in the Scriptures as being a people who are enlightened and taught of God. They are said to have an unction from the Holy One. And it is the Holy Spirit's peculiar office to lead them into all truth. And all this for the increase and fostering of their faith. They are not kept in darkness that they may believe, but brought into the light that they may believe. Here is the difference between the religion of Christ and the religion of the Antichrist. Antichrist religion will keep you in darkness, always searching for the truth, but never reaching it. True Christian religion says you have the truth in the Holy Scriptures. Study them and know God. Again, Spurgeon says, do not be content to be saved in the dark. Try to find out how it is that you're saved. Try to find out how it is you're saved. I'll continue. You're on a rock, but look at the rock and understand why it is a rock and how you came to be standing on it. Spurgeon goes on to say that, Much of the Arminianism that we see in the present day is built upon a lack of knowledge of the Scriptures. Much of the distaste and hatred for the doctrines of election and predestination and sovereignty come from a lack of knowledge or ignorance. Not all, but much of. Let me tell you a story. I used to hate the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I used to disbelieve in things like election. But it wasn't until I started to read the Bible over and over, page by page, cover to cover. Eleven years ago, I began that journey. I started a Bible reading plan. And since then, I've read the Bible through maybe ten times. And coming into that kind of close contact with God's Word consistently, day on day, year on year, it does something to you. It changes you. You begin to let go of your preconceived ideas about who God should be, you begin to trust in God's word. And everything you get told about God, you begin to hold up to the light of Scripture. Every time you hear a so-called apostle or prophet tell you something about God, you go, let me just check that. Let me just check that out. I began to study Greek and Hebrew. I've learned them now so that I can read my New Testament purely in Greek. 
Why? Because I'm a pastor. I'm a shepherd of God's people. Why would I not do that? It concerns me that there is not a hunger amongst ministers in this country to learn the original languages. Why? If a biologist can go to university and get a doctorate to teach people about biology, why can't a minister of the Bible learn the original languages? This is not a boast, but it's just to tell you, studying the word is important. Being under Bible ministry in these days is to know your God. It is to be strong. It is to stand firm. Those who do not know their God will be at the mercy of the enemy in these days and will be tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine and teaching. There are many things that have changed in me over those 10 years of reading the Bible through and through. Many things. Not just knowledge things. I've been constantly battered by God as well and transformed and, you know, crushed and rebuilt time and time again. I'm sure you have too. But we must, brothers and sisters, bring ourselves consistently to the Word of God and read it as it is, raw. Take it neat. Stop taking the Bible with fizzy water. Stop taking it with grapefruit. Stop taking it with all sorts of mixers. Take the Bible straight. Nothing wrong with reading Bible in one year with Nicky Gumbel. But listen, try just reading the Bible. Try just reading the Bible. If you need to get study apps, get Blue Letter Bible. Get Bible Hub. Actually study what you're reading as well. It's really good. Let me give you some tips. How can we know God more in these days? I want a church full of Maccabees. I want a church who know their God. As I said, read scripture often. But not just in verse by verse, but read it in large chunks. Have you ever sat down and read Romans in one sitting? Try it. It was a letter. It was meant to be read out all at once. Read it out loud if you want. But be consistent with it. Read large chunks of scripture. Number two, as I said, actually study what you're reading. Don't just take it from me. Please, what I'm saying, be diligent. Go home. Pastor Graham said this today. Is that true? I'm going to go and check him out. I don't mind that. I like that. I've had people in this church come to me and say, Graham, you actually said this, but, but I read up on it and actually it's this. And I've been like, you're right. I'm sorry. Please do that. Please be students of God's word. Get Blue Letter Bible. Get Bible Hub. Get some commentaries, okay? If there's a verse you don't understand and you don't have these apps, find a more mature Christian to ask the question of. You've got home group leaders, Mike and Sue, Lynn and Eddie, Darren and Yvonne. Speak to them. Ask them what they know about this verse. Thirdly, attend a Bible teaching church. You know, if, if this isn't your home church or you don't feel called to this church, that's fine. There's lots of great churches around. But please find a Bible teaching church. Find a church that teaches you verse by verse through the scriptures. If you're finding a church that only ever teaches in series, right, but they never go verse by verse, don't hang around there too long. You need verse by verse, okay? Don't choose a church based on the style of worship. Please, I've done, I've been, I've been all in. I'm not just judging everyone because I've been here. Choose a church based on their faithfulness to God's word. On their faithfulness to the word of God. Not on the style of worship. Not on the community. Not on how good the coffee is. On the word of God, Okay? Teach others about God. You know, in this church, we believe in raising the next generation to know their God. And we believe that having a kids' ministry on Sunday is important. So firstly, I want to say, if you've got kids, bring them consistently to sit under Bible ministry. Secondly, if you're a parent, we know as parents, and I know this as a, as a father, it's actually my responsibility, first and foremost, to disciple my girls to know their God. Discipleship starts at home. And through teaching our kids, it actually helps us learn too. And if you don't have kids, if you've got family, use opportunities that God gives you to give them lessons about God. If you're part of a home group, be a part of it. Contribute. Find little opportunities 
to teach others about the Word of God. And you'll find that you too grow in knowledge. Next, I want to say this. Make use of historic creeds and confessions of faith. Always get the question, why do we do these creeds? Why do we do these creeds? And I say, I say this. Every church has a creed. Every church has a creed. The only question is whether it's biblical. Every church has a creed. It's the things that you believe, the things that you say over and over and over. Okay? All we do is we use the historic ones because we believe, though they are not inspired of God, they are condensed. They are condensed truth. They are the Bible condensed down into easily recitable statements. And these will help you in your Bible study. Finally, I want to say this. In all of your learning here, don't forget to learn here. Like I said before, that word yada in the Hebrew, it's also a word used for intimacy. We have to know God intimately. We have to know him as father. We have to know him in our devotion time. When we come to prayer, we're not just going and saying words, speaking things out into the ether, are we? We come into the presence of God the Father. We have to know him and we have to be known by him. Let's not be people that only come to worship on a Sunday. Let's be people who are in the presence of God day by day. However you do that, however much time you can give, let's be consistent with it. Finally, let me just give you some advice. If you follow all of those things that I've just mentioned, if you follow all of them and you get on that journey of knowing God more deeply, of standing for biblical truth, don't expect applause for it. Don't expect applause for it, please. As we've read in this chapter, it says this, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame. But wait a minute, God. These are the wise people. These are the ones who are making others understand. And God says, yes, they will stumble by sword, by flame, by captivity and plunder. And when they stumble, they shan't receive much help. Many shall join themselves to them with flattery. In some of the wise shall stumble so they may be refined, purified, made white until the time of the end. For it still awaits the appointed time. Hallelujah. Let me say this. If you know your God, church, if you know him and you apply yourself, as I've just said, if you know that and you want to go on this journey of really understanding God more, if you want to know the truth about him and begin to stand firm against the lies, and there are many out there, God will use you. He will use you, and he'll use you to make many others understand. I found this to be true. Mercifully, he's used me in all my brokenness and failures. He's used me to help others understand too. And he'll do just the same through you. But at the same time, as I've followed God in truth, I've experienced my fair share of pain, of disappointment, of betrayal. I've I've experienced people distancing themselves from me. I'm no longer cool to hang out with. I'm no longer cool to put up on a little selfie on social media with. I used to be, but not now. There are people that call me divisive. Let me say this, they'll call you divisive. You want to go on this journey for truth? You want to stand for biblical truth? You want to actually say that there's error in much teaching today? Don't expect everybody to applaud you. Don't expect a little blue tick. Okay? People will call you divisive. R.C. Sproul said this, truth is divisive. It is divisive. It divides between truth and error. You really want to stand firm for God? Then we have to expect pushback. But I think that this journey, if we go on it as a church, it will put us in good stead for the days that are ahead. It will, and it will enable us to stand firm and to enjoy God. Don't let the world rob you of the glory of God's word. As I've read his word, I've seen, I've seen the sovereignty of God expounded. I posted a message in the WhatsApp group this morning of a podcast by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Please listen to it. But I've found this doctrine to be true, that he works all things together for the good of those who love him, to those who are what? Called or the elect according to his purpose. Listen, that doctrine is biblically sound and true, and it has given me so much comfort and joy in times of suffering. 
Don't let the world rob you of biblical truth and the blessings of biblical truth. Don't let the fear of becoming divisive rob you of the true glory of God's word. If we do these things, if we commit to being a people who know their God, when deception comes to our door, we're going to be able to discern it. We're going to be able to stand firm. We're going to be able to help others to understand. And we'll be used of God, church. Let me tell you, you will be used of God, just like the Maccabees. And we'll see a revival of true worship in this nation. Isn't that what we want? In these last days, to see one final revival in these nations, on these shores. I want to see it. I want to see it. And I believe God wants to raise up a Maccabean generation one last time before Christ comes back. Did you know we're in the last hours now? We're in the last hours. If they were in the last days in the first century, how much more now? Let's pray. We're not going to have a final song of worship um, because I've gone on quite a bit and everybody's head's fried. But I think that the Holy Spirit does want to minister. I do think the Holy Spirit is, is here right now and he wants to minister. I know that for many of you, today is just an encouragement of a journey that you're already on. It's an encouragement to continue on the journey that you're already on of knowing God. Be strengthened and be encouraged, saints, to stay on that journey. For some others of you, this is a challenging word. This is a word that is hard to take and maybe you feel this is, this is difficult for me to hear. Allow this word some room in your head and your heart now to percolate. Allow it some space. Maybe the Holy Spirit does want to encourage you to begin to search after him more diligently in the scriptures. Maybe for some of you it's felt challenging. You think, well, I don't have time to spend time with God. That's true, but as they say, our social media history is going to be a witness against us on the final day. Did we really not have enough time? <laughs> I know I don't pass that test. So Holy Spirit, Father, Son, we thank you that today you have ministered to us through your word. And God, we submit ourselves to it. And God, we pray right now that you might make of us a Maccabean generation. You might make of us a people who know you, who serve you, who are able to stand and able to do great things in these times. May we be disciple makers, not just those in the team, but every one of you is a disciple maker. Every one of you was chosen by God to go and make others understand his word. So, Lord, we submit, yourself, we submit ourselves rather to your word now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill each and every one of us with a zeal to go deeper into the word of God and to become a people who really do make many understand the truth about you. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.